This event was recorded live at the 2011 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Hello there and welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival. My name is Yvonne Manning and this is Rachel Mapson who will be signing for the session. And I am so delighted to be here to introduce a much-loved author. Now, before I introduce our author, you've all been given a coloured piece of paper. Now, can I just check that you all have a coloured piece of paper? Anyone doesn't have? Okay, we've all got a coloured. These are very important. You must not eat them or drop them, or dribble on them. Keep them very safe. That's all I'm going to say just now about the, these coloured cards. Our author, our amazing author, has delighted us with so many books and introduced us to so many enchanting characters. She almost doesn't need an introduction, um, but I'm so delighted to be here to do that. Um, her books have are award-winning, they've been shortlisted for many, many book awards, and indeed, quite deservedly, Jacqueline has been awarded herself with OBE for, lit for uh, services to literacy in schools, and um, became a dame in 2008. So, uh, very, very well deserved for all her enthusiasm and love of, and great champion actually, of uh, books and reading for children and young people. Um, I'm a librarian, so I love, I love authors like Jacqueline um, because their books just fly out of our libraries, but also I get to see books that aren't published yet, and I've been reading Sapphire Battersea, and I love, I love this new character, um, and uh, just can't wait to finish off that book, so look forward to getting that. Anyway, without further ado, I would like you to give a great big Edinburgh Book Festival welcome to our national treasure, our wonderful author, Jacqueline Wilson. Thank you. Thank you. Hello, everybody. It's lovely for me to be back in Edinburgh. I was the door coming to this festival, not only because so many of you have become almost like old friends, but also Edinburgh is such a lovely city. And I didn't have anything official to do yesterday, so I could just go out and enjoy myself. I went shopping, bought some new silly sparkly shoes, which are lovely, and went to see some shows, the Korean drumming, which was really, really spectacular, had a wonderful time. But also, I'm here to work, and on the plane coming up here, I was reading lots of fan letters and printed off emails, and nearly every single one that I read, the girls, and there were some boys too, were saying that they wanted to be writers like me. And I wonder how many children in the audience here want to write when they grow up? Lots and lots and lots of you. Well, it won't surprise you to know that when I was young, this is what I wanted to do too. Um, I didn't necessarily tell all my friends. I didn't want them to tease me too much, but it was kind of my burning ambition from when I was about six years old. I loved books so much that I wanted to write my own. Now, when I was at primary school, I had some lovely teachers who really did encourage me with my writing. I had my particular favorite, Mr. Townsend, who was, well, he taught me when I was about 10. And um, he was just one of those teachers that you dream about, so gentle, so caring. And he knew that I liked writing. And every now and then, if, it, if I'd done an essay that he thought was particularly good, he would actually tell me to come up in front of the class and read it to everybody else. Now this was a wonderful opportunity for me because um, I was quite shy and needed a bit of sort of 
pushing. And also, I generally didn't shine very much at any other subject at school. I was completely useless at any kind of arithmetic. I was one of these children that you'd, you'd give me those problems about men digging holes in fields, and I would sit there pondering. And instead of working out how to do the sum, I would think, why are these men digging a hole in a field? Is it a swimming pool? What are they going to do with it? And by the end of the lesson, I was still none the wiser. So I always came bottom of the class in arithmetic. And I certainly wasn't a sporty girl either. Whenever it was time for any games lesson, my heart would thump because we'd have to do the picking of the teams. And although I was reasonably popular and had some friends, even if my best friend were the sort of team captain, they'd never ever pick me because I couldn't catch a ball, I couldn't throw a ball, I couldn't run fast, and it was terribly humiliating. So being quite good at writing, it was my one chance actually to shine a little bit. Then I went on to my secondary school. In England, you go on to secondary school at the age of 11. It's quite a big step. And it was a bit worrying for me because none of the children at my primary school were going on to the secondary school. And it's always a bit nerve-wracking that first day when you go to a school. But I gave myself a little pep talk. And I had this mad idea that somehow, because I was going to a new school, I could become a whole new person. And that suddenly I would be brilliant at maths top of the class and that I would suddenly become fleet of foot and be able to see the ball and catch it and throw it and be brilliant and everybody would clap me and it didn't work out like that. After a whole week had gone past, I realised that in my new maths class I was going to be right at the bottom and I had been introduced to terrible new games like netball and hockey and these were even worse than the primary school games and certainly I was always going to be useless. But what was actually much more worrying, I'd looked so forward to my English lesson and very much wanted to please the English teacher, but it suddenly seemed as if I'd lost all ability at writing in that she seemed to have very different ideas. I'd tried so hard with my first English essay. I wrote page after page. I put in lots of metaphors and similes to try and impress her. And when she gave our English essays back, you know, I felt sort of fizzing with excitement. And I fantasized that she might put a little comment on the end of, oh, Jacqueline, you're a born writer. Oh, what a pleasure it is to teach a girl like you, something like that. Not a bit of it. She gave me my essay back and it was covered all over with that red teacher's marking pen and little sort of comments in the margin like slang or too colloquial or I don't like your tone or this is highly inappropriate. And she gave me a very low mark, and I felt very, very depressed about this. I tried even harder the next time, but I simply couldn't crack it. And I did have great respect for this English teacher, Miss Pierce, and I loved the literature lessons when she told us about all the classic books. And um, she it was who introduced me to Jane Austen and Charlotte Bronte. But certainly, she didn't seem to think I had any writing ability whatsoever. Now, I rather think if now, when I've written heaps and heaps of books, if dear Miss Pierce was still alive and I gave her one of my published copies, she'd be very polite and thank me. She'd open it up but that hand would be twitching for her red marking pen and she'd go slang and too colloquial and I don't like your tone all over my published book. I simply couldn't write the sort of essay that Miss Pierce would have approved of. So certainly she didn't think I'd ever make it as a writer. 
And my mum and dad really didn't have much faith in me either. I didn't come from the sort of background where people went off and did things like writing books. My mum actually laughed when I told her very timidly that this is what I wanted to do. And my mum's and dad's idea for me was that I should have a respectable job. We didn't come, sadly, from the sort of family where you went on to university, but my mum was determined that I had some kind of training. And in those long ago days, girls like me were generally trained to be secretaries. Now, I didn't want to be a secretary, but my mum was pretty fierce and I was, was reasonably obedient at that time. So sadly, I left school at 16 and went to a technical college and learnt how to be a secretary. And I realised I wasn't going to be a good one. I couldn't do shorthand very well. I wasn't very good at typing. My editors can still vouch for the fact I'm still not very good at typing now. And I thought, I don't want a job as a shorthand typist junior secretary. But at the end of the course, I knew I had to try and get a job. I was just 17. This is what you did. And I was looking in the local paper, which for me, living near London, was the evening standard. And in those days, they had lots of job adverts at the back. And I was looking, feeling very, very worried down all these little adverts, because all the shorthand and typing speeds that they wanted, I wasn't at all sure I would actually be able to manage. When right at the bottom, but outlined in black, there was a little advert saying, wanted teenage writers. And I thought, well, I'm a teenager, and I desperately want to be a writer. So I wrote off for further details. And before long, through the post, came a whole information pack from DC Thompson's, the Scottish magazine and newspaper publishers. And they were saying that they had decided, this was way back in the 1960s, to publish the first full-color teenage magazine. And they liked to collect material for months and months ahead of publication date. So they have heaps of stuff when they're actually going to be publishing the magazine. And they said they were looking for all sorts of things, um, maybe fashion tips or beauty tips or romantic short stories. Well, I thought about this. I mean, I felt I couldn't possibly give anybody any fashion tips. I was horribly aware that in those days, I was not a fashionable girl. I had a clear idea in my head of the way I wanted to look. I wanted to look cool. I wanted to wear black clothes. I longed to have a duffel coat. And I wanted to wear great long pointy witchy shoes, which were called winkle pickers. Now, my mum didn't allow me to dress like that. And sadly, although I had a Saturday job, I didn't earn enough money to have my own clothes. My mum's idea of the way she wanted me to look was to be ladylike. Now, there is no 17-year-old in this land that wants to look ladylike. So I was desperately embarrassed about my smart little pastel suits. And so I felt I couldn't possibly give fashion tips. And I certainly couldn't give beauty tips either. I was no beauty myself. Um, I didn't have any special makeup and skin cleansing routine. I just bought some cheap makeup from Boots the Chemist, put it on my face, hoped for the best, and then washed it off at night with a face cloth. Well, you can't really do a beauty column with these sorts of facts. So that left romantic short stories. Now, I've been writing short stories right throughout my school days. And sometimes, particularly, you know, when I had a crush on a boy I saw on the bus going to school, I would try and write romantic stories. But I don't know, it's the one type of writing that I'm pretty useless at. Maybe it's I've just got too much of a sense of humor, but I just can't take romance too seriously. I did have a go at writing a story like this for the Potential magazine, but I simply couldn't make it work. And so I decided to do something maybe a bit arrogant. 
I decided to send them uh, some material that they hadn't actually asked for. I decided I wanted to send them a funny story about how exciting it is being a teenager, but also how agonizing and embarrassing it can be too. So I wrote a heavily autobiographical story about what it's like to go to your first posh dance with all your friends and how exciting it is getting ready and you spend ages helping each other with your makeup, doing each other's hair, trying not to fall over as you walk in your first high heels and then you get to the dance hall and it's all exciting and there's a live band and there are lots of strange quite good looking boys and you think oh is the one here that's going to be my boyfriend and then you're standing there with all your girlfriends and then one of your friends gets asked up to dance and then another one does and then suddenly it dawns on you there you are standing all by yourself and for whatever reason nobody is asking you to dance and so I wrote about all the ridiculous ploys you have to try and pretend that you're still enjoying yourself and you tap your foot in time to the music as if you're just there because you like the band and you make desperately frequent trips to the ladies room just to have something to do and you have this fixed smile in your face I'm having a great time here and then eventually it's the end of the evening and somebody's dad comes to collect you all and drive you all home and your mum is waiting up for you to hear how you got on and if you're anything like me, you tell whacking great fibs and say you had a wonderful time and heaps of boys dance with you and ask for your phone number. And then you go to bed and you pull the covers over your head and cry. So I wrote this story and I think it must have chimed with one of the editors on the Potential magazine because within days, they wrote back to me and they said they liked my story and they wanted to pay me real money. Now, it was only three pounds, which even in those long ago days in the 1960s wasn't a lot of money. But I think I can truthfully say that I haven't earned any sum since that has meant so much to me as that first three pounds, because it meant that the people at DC Thompson's were taking me seriously and they wanted actually to pay for my words. So I didn't hang around. I sat down that very day and wrote them another story and another and another. I bombarded them with stories. And before too long, they actually wrote and said, would I like to come up and work for them in Dundee? Now, this was a big step, and my mum was quite wary about it, but she could see how keen I was to start an actual writing career. And you don't often have many chances in life. And when they come along, I think you've got to be brave and say, yes, I'll do it. And so my mum said I had to live in a hostel so that there would be people looking after me. And um, somebody at the magazine said that I could go and live in the Church of Scotland Girls Hostel. And that reassured my mum tremendously. So she said, OK, you can go. And um, my mum and dad saw me off at Kings Cross Railway Station. I got the sleeper train up to Dundee. Now, it was the very first time I'd ever been to Scotland. And when I got off the train at 6 o'clock in the morning, I discovered two things almost immediately. One was that it is at least 10 degrees colder in Dundee than anywhere else in the planet. And two, the Dundee accent, I'm sorry any Dundonians here, is impenetrable to a little Sassanax. So I did wonder how on earth I was going to get on, but shivering, I managed to find my way to the hostel. I had actually to get a taxi for the first time in my life, and I was very worried about it because I wasn't sure I had enough money with me actually to pay my taxi fare. And it drove me up this hill in Dundee and dropped me off at a huge great Victorian house, very sort of gothic and forbidding looking. I went and knocked on the door and eventually the matron came 
and opened the door, still in her dressing gown, because it was very early, and looked at me in astonishment. And I introduced myself and said, I've come to live here. And she shook her head at me and said, well, it's the first I've heard of it. No, you can't come here. I'm completely full up. And somehow or other, somebody had been meant to book me in, and this hadn't happened. The matron knew nothing about me. And then she saw this girl on her doorstep, and probably I looked as if I was about to burst into tears because I didn't know where else to go. So she took pity on me. She invited me in. We sat in the kitchen. She gave me a cup of tea. And she said, well, maybe we can make room for just one more. She looked me up and down, and she said, well, you're not very big. I've got a camp bed that I keep for my niece when she comes to stay with me. Maybe you could fit into that. So she found the camp bed, and we thought, yes, I could just about fit it. But then she said, where are we going to put you? Because there's a certain rule that says you can only have a certain number of beds in each dormitory. And she said, I can't put you actually in the corridor. The girls will trip over you. And then she suddenly realized where she could put me. I know, she said, we'll put you in the linen cupboard. <laughs> now, the linen cupboard at the hostel truly wasn't that much bigger than, say, your airing cupboard at home. But with a lot of pushing and shoving, we got the camp bed in the cupboard. And she said, I could put some of my things on one of the shelves that went all round the linen cupboard. And then I just about managed to sit on top of the camp bed as my chair. And this was my new home. And for about three months, until one of the other girls moved out of one of the dormitories, this was my actual place where I lived, the cupboard. And actually, it was a wonderful, wonderful lucky break because it was the only warm room in the whole hostel. There was no central heating at that time, and we were allowed a fire in the girls' living room when we came back from work. But apart from that, it was freezing. But the hot pipes went through the linen cupboard to air all the clothes. And so all the shells were wonderfully cozy and warm. And all the girls in the hostel wanted to be my best friend, to be introduced into the cupboard so they could cozy up on the shells and be warm. And sometimes at night, it was a bit like one of those Enid Blyton school stories. We had midnight feasts. We discovered we could squash about 12 girls into the cupboard, some lying on shelves, some all squeezed up on the camp bed with me. Very stupidly, and please don't anybody ever do this, we had candles, great fire hazard, but we, it, this was the age of great big bouffant hairdos, so we all had hair rollers, so they made wonderful candle holders, so we had our candles, and we'd all saved some food and bought some chocolate and everything for our midnight feast. And we had a wonderful, wonderful time. And sometimes, when I look back on my teenage years, I think my happiest times were all squashed up together in the linen cupboard. It was great. I loved my new job, too. The wonderful thing about DC Thompson's is that you don't just work on one magazine. You often get experience working on all sorts of different magazines. And it's a wonderful training for a potential writer. Um, I did contribute quite a lot of stories for the Teenage Magazine. And I was so delighted that when it came out, guess what it was called? Jackie. And um, Mr. Cuthbert and Mr. Tate, who were in charge at that time, told me with a little sparkle in their eyes that they decided to name it after me, which I found very sweet indeed. I also, as well as working for Jackie, I worked on a monthly magazine called Annabelle. And uh, slightly bizarrely, my speciality each month was to write a mother and baby column. Now, I must have been 18 by this time. I don't think I'd ever even held a baby. But um, journalists have to learn to be versatile and sensible. And I got the, the current sort of, what's her name? Gina Ford, the, the baby care specialist. 
The current person um, in those days was Dr. Spock. So I got Dr. Spock's Baby and Child Care out and read it all the way through. I stopped various mums that I met in the street with prams and pushchairs and asked them all sorts of stuff. And then I wrote my column. And then I also worked on a weekly magazine called Red Letter. And that was great good fun because it was full of stories and I could write as many stories as I wanted to. And in fact, it had quite a small staff. And so they did use the staff for all sorts of things. Now, Red Letter had a reader's page for all our readers to write in. But sadly, lots of our readers were very busy women and didn't actually have time to write letters. And so when our readers page looked as if it was going to be completely empty each week, as the youngest journalist, it was my job to write the readers letters, which was very good training. And then, now I'm sure it couldn't possibly happen nowadays, but way back then in the 1960s, they also had me write the horoscope column. Now, I don't know anything at all about astrology. I wouldn't understand how to read a star chart. It would be worse than all those mathematical problems for me. Basically, instead of doing it properly, I made it all up. Now, my birthday is December the 17th. That makes me Sagittarius. When I was writing the horoscope column, all Sagittarians were going to meet tall, dark, handsome strangers. They were going to do wonderfully in their careers. They were going to make lots and lots of money. My predictions got wilder and wilder. And yet, wonderfully, all these many years later, many of these predictions have actually come true for me. The one thing that I don't think I could ever have predicted was that now I have my very own DC Thompson's magazine, the Jacqueline Wilson Mag, and um, how happy I am to contribute to that each month and do the special letter for my readers, and I do all the writing tips myself. And Nick has a special feature, Nick Sharrett, my illustrator, how to draw all, all Jacqueline's characters. And each month, I painstakingly draw them too, because I'd love to be able to draw as well as Nick can. And, um, and this particular month, it's a super bumper issue, because one of the, the free things is a sampler of my brand new book, Safar Battersea, to see if you're going to enjoy it. And also, there's a book bag starring a very special favorite character of mine. Now, whenever people talk about me and my books, there's often just one particular character that springs to mind. And, you know, I've written heaps and heaps of books, but I have written now four books about this character. And if she were real, she would actually nod her head at me and say, see, I'm the most popular, because she's a girl who very, very much wants to come top with everybody and be the center of attention. And how pleased she would be that she's had the, one of the most successful long-running children's television series, and they are currently making yet another series at the moment in Newcastle. Um, she's had two different part work magazines about her. She's had a stage show. She's had so much merchandising. There's been pajamas and little dolls and key rings and um, reading lamps. Um, girls, at one time, you could even get a pair of knickers with her name and face on. So which character am I actually thinking of? Tracy Beaker, absolutely. And whenever I mention Tracy Beaker, even though I'm sure some of you will have heard this story before, I have to tell the silly but absolutely true story of how I got her name. Because it's always very important to me, the moment I start thinking up a new story, I have to get the character's name. Once I've got their name, 
then it's almost as if I've given birth to them inside my head and they run around and do all sorts of interesting things and I can write it down. But the name is the bit that makes them spring to life. And I knew I wanted to write a story about a sad little girl stuck in a children's home. I knew straight away what her first name would be. I thought Tracy is a lovely, modern, bouncy sort of name. But I couldn't think of the right surname for her. I wanted to call the book The Story of Tracy. And then I wanted the right surname that would stick in people's minds, be a little bit quirky, but not completely silly. And I was thinking about this one morning in my bath. Now, I'm a terrible daydreamer, and I particularly like lying back in a lovely hot bath and daydreaming. And I was looking all around my bathroom, thinking about Tracy inside my head, and wondering, what kind of a surname is she going to have? And yet, when you think about it, a bathroom isn't really the most inspirational place for surnames. You know, I thought, shall I call her Tracy Facecloth? No. Tracy Toothbrush? No. Tracy Tap? No. Tracy Soap? No. Tracy Toilet? No. And so I thought, no, you're never ever going to get the right sort of surname for Tracy. Get on with things. So I wash myself, I wash my hair, and I don't have any elaborate shower attachments in my bathroom. And to rinse my hair, I just run the bath taps, and I have an old Snoopy beaker that I keep on the edge of the bath, and I have the beaker under the taps and just sluice my hair clean. So I reach for the beaker and then stared at it, transfixed, and thought, how about Tracy Beaker? And it was just the right sort of rhythm, the right sort of quirkiness, and I just had that lovely feeling, you know that feeling at the back of your neck that goes down your spine? This is it, this is my girl. And I never ever realized though, sitting in my bath, that this was the moment that my Tracy was actually going to be born. So I'm very, very grateful to my Tracy. And also, for any Tracy fans, not only is the new television series Tracy Beaker Returns being made and will start next January, but if you like Tracy, if you like many of my characters, if you hopefully like me, there's going to be a special exhibition about me in the Seven Stories Children's Centre for Children's Books in Newcastle, opening in October. And there's going to be a very special room full of Tracy Beaker things. And the, the organisers are negotiating with the television people to have different um, things from the actual dumping ground that they use, actually, so you can go and sit on the sofa where Tracy sits and do all sorts of things. There's going to be all sorts of writing activities. There's also, when you go in the exhibition, after a, a sort of little welcome from me on, on a television screen, there is going to be a mock-up of my 1950s bedroom with, with uh, not my actual bed, but a bed very similar to the one that I had, and a bookshelf where you can take down the books and see the sort of books I read when I was nine or ten. Um, there are some of my actual real dolls and cuddly toys and ornaments, um, lots of my um, notebooks and drawings and all different things. And then you go all through the exhibition and you see lots of different rooms devoted to all of my particular favourite books and hopefully some of your favourite books too. There's a lovely big session, a section with um, all of Nick Sharrett's artwork and a sort of film of Nick talking about me. And then right at the end, there's actually another room, which is a mock-up of my bedroom today. 
and um, with my very special Victorian chaise long, where I recline early in the mornings like a, like a sort of elegant invalid and do my writing now with my very much grander bookshelves. And there's even on the actual chaise long a mock-up of my cat Jacob, grey and white and very furry, just like my real cat. So it's almost as if I will have invited you into my own house. And Tracy would be very happy that she is one of the star attractions there. Um, now, people often ask me, is Tracy your favourite character? And I am very fond of her and very grateful too, because I think she has very much contributed to my success. But I think my favourite character has to be Hetty Feather. I loved writing this Victorian story about a foundling girl. She's little and thin, but very fiery and feisty. She's got bright red hair. And in Victorian times, this was considered quite a disadvantage and that they thought if you had bright red hair, you would have a very fierce temper. Well, this probably wasn't true at all, but in my Hetty's case, yes, Hetty certainly has a temper. I loved doing all the research for Hetty. Um, I'd always been very passionate about the Victorians, and my daughter Emma was too. And when Emma was little, we used to play all sorts of um, joint imaginary games, pretending that we were Victorian ladies. Although Emma was very artful, sometimes when she was about four or five, she would say that she had to be the Victorian lady, and I was actually the servant girl. So basically, I had to keep curtsying to Emma and say, yes, Miss Emma, well, she told me what to do. But because I had, had learned an awful lot and read all sorts of Victorian stories to Emma, I didn't have too much research to do for Hetty Feather. Um, by the time I'd finished writing her story, I, I did wonder, is Hetty Feather going to be a popular book because mostly I write very modern contemporary stories and I didn't want to disappoint anybody and yet much to my relief and joy I've had so much so many letters and emails saying yes we like Hetty or even sometimes she's our absolute favorite and she was one of these characters that didn't go away at all so there is indeed a sequel coming out right at the end of September and this is going to be the title Sapphire Battersea and I know some of you read Hetty Feather again and again. You'll be able to work out why it is called Sapphire Battersea. And there are all sorts of bizarre things going on. Hetty leaves the Foundling Hospital to be a servant. But as you can guess, she's not actually going to be a very humble, obedient servant. And then things happen that turn her whole life upside down. And she ends up at the seaside as part of some bizarre traveling show where there's a man covered in tattoos, there's a female giant, and Hetty is one of these strange curiosities. And, um, and when we get to the end, there is, it's not exactly a happy ending, but there's a kind of, there's an interesting ending, shall I say, but hopefully it will leave you thinking, oh gosh, what's going to happen now to her? Because I have decided that Hetty is going to be part of a trilogy and I am now currently on the first chapter of the third book about Hetty Feather. So um, by the time I finish that, and that will come out next October, um, then I will be very, very happy and um, maybe get back to modern life again. But um, my latest book that's actually properly published is one called Lily Alone. And I can see quite a few of you are actually clutching copies of Lily Alone. Um, this was a book that often people say, where do you get your ideas from? And I say truthfully, I don't know. Often ideas just pop into my head. But I got the, the 
main idea for Lily Alone because I love to go for walks in my local park. Now, it's not just an ordinary park with sort of ornamental flower beds and maybe swings for children and a duck pond. I'm lucky enough to live near a huge great park that goes on for miles. It's just like the countryside called Richmond Park. If you're ever near London, it might be worth a trip to Richmond Park. It is amazing. It's a deer park. There's fallow deer and red deer. There are um, lots of interesting wildlife. There's huge great ponds. There's wonderful ancient old oak trees, many of which are hollow. And when I was a little girl, I used to be taken to Richmond Park with my dad, and I would climb up inside one or two of these hollow oak trees and always have this fantasy how wonderful it would be to have my very own tree house or to camp out in Richmond Park. Then when my daughter Emma was around, well, we took her. Um, for picnics in Richmond Park and she loved clambering in and out the hollow oak trees too. And so recently when I was walking in the park with a friend and I was just still thinking, I'm a little old in the tooth for clambering in hollow trees now, but I, I still wanted to and I thought I would love to write the sort of children's book where children actually do camp out in the park, maybe for days, but I thought, why would these children be hiding in the park like that? What has happened to them? And that is how I got the idea for Lily alone. Lily is my main character who tells the story. And I'm particularly fond of Lily because she is a girl who tries so hard to look after her. She's got a brother. Baxter, who's about six, and he's a twin, and he's, he's got a very timid girl twin, Bliss, and then there's a little girl, Pixie. They're, they're a bit of a handful, this family. They have a mum, but although she isn't a very bad mum or a wicked mum, she's a sort of mum who just can't cope. She really, she still wants to go out and party and have a great time. And there she is stuck in a little flat with these four children. And she, she, she really, really feels fed up and miserable. And she meets a new man. Mum has got not a very good record for having really pretty dreadful boyfriends. But she's really thrilled to bits about this one. And she has a chance to go abroad to Spain with him just for a week or so. And she doesn't want to tell him that she's got four kids at home. So she thinks, OK, I'll get one of the kids' fathers to look after the children. But she doesn't put all this in place properly. Mum goes off. This particular father, for reasons, sort of complicated reasons in the plot, never shows up. And there they are, the children all alone. And Lily, who's about just 11, say, has to look after the children. Now, I don't, don't know how any of you would feel if you had to look after your younger brothers and sisters like this. I mean, it could be great fun because you don't have to go to bed until whenever you feel like it. You could watch whatever you like on television. There's quite a lot of good stuff in the fridge. You can have a whole pack of ice cream if you fancy it. You can do whatever you please. However, if it's dark in the night and you get a bit scared, you're the one in charge. What are you going to do about going to school? You know your wee brother and sisters are going to start chatting to the teachers that your mum has gone off and you're all alone. And my Lily is very worried that this means that they're going to be taken into care, which she doesn't want. And then a very nice, kind teacher has some inkling that something is up and comes to visit them. And Lily realises that she's got to get the kids away quickly. And she thinks, where could we go where nobody could find us? The park. And so off they go. And some of the time, 
they have amazing adventures and great good fun and it's certainly a challenge to them how they're going to find enough to drink, how they're going to find enough to eat. I set myself this challenge too, wandering around the park. I didn't go quite as far as Lily as actually hitching myself up over a wall and actually tiptoeing into somebody's kitchen and stealing the food, but I did peer over the wall just to see if it was possible and then saw a security camera and thought, oh my goodness, somebody will think I'm really trying to break into this, these people's houses, so backed away rapidly. But everything that Lily does in the book, you can actually do if anybody actually wants to trek around Richmond Park and see and then I had to think how am I going to end this story and um, it has what I think is a reasonably happy ending but you are left a little bit thinking oh goodness I hope everything's going to be all right for them so if anybody is particularly anxious about the ending of Lily alone I can tell you I promise you they will all be together and everything will be all right. Because apart from, I'm afraid my sister Jodie does have a very sad ending. But apart from that, most of my books, even though unhappy things happen in them, I am absolutely determined to make as happy an ending as I possibly can. And just before we start the questions, I will tell you that the new book that will be coming out in February, I seem to have been writing all day and all night, there's so many books coming out at the moment, is a fun book with lots of funny things happening. There are one or two weenie-teeny worrying books. It wouldn't be a Jacqueline Wilson book if there weren't, but very, very happy ending. And it's called The Worst Thing About My Sister. And um, when, um, it, while I was writing the book and giving talks like this, I'd be asking people, you know, do you have a sister? What's the worst thing about your sister? And at the signing, people, girls would be telling me, oh, the worst thing about my sister is we have to share a bedroom, or the worst thing about my sister is, you know, she teases me about this and that. But mums, even grandmas came up to me and said, do you know, the worst thing about my sister is this. So I really do feel that um, I should be very interested to know exactly how you feel. Now, I am so lucky in a way I don't have a sister. So I don't have a real sister that will put her sort of hands on the hips and say, what's this you've been writing about me? I've made it all up. Now, I've deliberately left a reasonably long time. We have, I think, 12 minutes so we can have some questions. And I think Yvonne is going to come back on the stage and help me with the questions because in spite of my glasses, I really can't see very well. And um, I, th I think mostly you're going to be blobs. And I might say, yes, little girl in the blue T-shirt, and it happens to be a boy, and you would be mortally offended. So if you have a question to ask me, put up your hand and you'll be chosen. If you can wait for the mic, that's fine. Which of the characters in your book can you most relate to? Uh, somebody said, which, which of my characters in my books can I most relate to? Um, there's a little bit of me in most of them. I'm certainly not as outrageous and extrovert as a Tracy Beaker or a Hetty Feather. I suppose you could say I'm a little bit like, I've written a book called Double Act about identical twins and Garnet, the younger twin by about five minutes, um, is, is quieter, she's quite imaginative, she's a bit anxious at times. And yet, although I think I would be most like Garnet, there is a little bit of Ruby, her sister in me, in that can be a bit of a show-off and really want to hoggle the attention. So, so I think those two are, are most of what's like me. There is also a book called Clean Break, 
where I have a writer, a children's writer, called Jenna Williams, and she happens to have the same initials as me, and Nick has drawn a picture of her, and she looks pretty similar to me. So I'm definitely like Jenna Williams, too. Okay? Who's your favourite author? My favourite author. I have so many favourite authors. I very, very carefully don't generally talk about modern children's authors because I, there are so many that I like and admire and so many that are my friends. But if one or two of them heard that I'd said so-and-so and they think, well, why didn't she pick me? That, that's very difficult. So when I was your age, I particularly liked Noel Stretfield. My favourite book of hers was Bally Shoes. Um, I liked E. Nesbitt, who wrote The Railway Children and Five Children and It and The Treasure Seekers. I loved her books and all sorts of girly books like Little Women and What Katie Did. Um, my favourite adult classic is Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte. And there's actually a version where you can get an actual introduction from me because um, it's, it's a wonderful book. And particularly the first few chapters, when Jane is a little girl, I think any 10-year-old could read very happily indeed. Um, do you think you could do a follow-up to Lily Alone? Sorry, what, what was that about Lily Alone? Um, could you do a follow-up to Lily Alone? A, a follow-up? Um, this is something that I have thought about because um, we've only got so far in Lily's story and it, there might well be other things that, that I want to, to write. This is what's so difficult because um, sometimes characters just stay in my head, and like, like Tracy did, like Hetty did. Um, other times, even if I might have left the book where you're not quite certain what's going to happen next, um, I somehow feel, no, I've told their story. Um, I don't know is, is the honest answer. I might go back to that story. Sometimes um, other books, like... Um, Little Darlings, lots of young people have written saying, come on, what happens next? Does Destiny actually make it as a singer? There are, there are some of these books that, that people wonder. I also, I've written quite a while ago for teenage books, the girls series, and I still get lots of requests for another book about Ellie Magda and Nadine. And I do think about this, but it's the one thing that authors can't really choose in that their characters choose themselves and there they are in their head and you just have to go with them. There's nothing to stop you writing another story about Lily. Oh, I tell you what, there, there was another story about Lily and her sisters in one of the um, editions of the Jacqueline Wilson magazine. And if, if any of you in February get the book, The Worst Thing About My Sister, um, and relate to Marty, the girl in that, there's going to be a World Book Day book coming out in March, and there's another story about them in that. Because sometimes I like to write just a short story about characters. And, um, because sometimes when you're starting to read a short story and you don't know the characters, it's a bit of an effort. But if you actually already know the characters, you can just slide straight into it. So, so that's what I've done then. one of your books, what would it be? If I had to read out one of my... No. If you had to rewrite one of your oh, books. Oh, rewrite. Oh, gosh. I think I would probably, if I could make myself, I'd almost rewrite all of them because um, it's... It's, you try so hard. I mean, I write my books. First of all, I have special notebooks, and I write them with a pen, okay? And then I have to type them onto my computer. And then I have to read them on the screen, changing bits and pieces and going through it all over again. Then I send them off to the publishers. 
And then my editors might say, well, hopefully they will say we like the book, but they might well say, mm, I think it sags a bit here, or maybe you've hurried the ending or something, so I have to rewrite that bit. And then um, when it's all set up in print, I have to read through the page proofs and just to make sure that everything's done okay and sometimes I might rewrite little bits then. So that by the time the book actually comes out, um, I've read it so many times. Um, I don't actually generally read the brand new copy of my book because I feel I can't bear to read it again. And if I have to, if I have to do a reading and read something out, there's nearly always some phrase that I would change. But it's a never-ending process. I don't think any author actually feels that they've got to the end of exactly how they would do things. Um, so probably, and I might, the, the one book that I might rewrite just a little bit, although maybe I couldn't even write it at all now, is a book called The Cat Mummy, which is a sad but funny story about a girl who has a very elderly cat and then something happens to it. Um, and I wrote this before I had a cat myself. Now I have my cat, Jacob. I could not bear to write the story like that. And um, it would be a very different story altogether. So um, that's when I certainly couldn't um, reread The Cat Mummy. I've become a very sentimental old lady about cats now. Why do you usually write about girls? I write about girls not because I prefer girls. I like boys just as much as girls. But I think I possibly know more about girls, simply because I was an only child, though I did long for brothers as I was growing up. And then I just had one daughter. And most of my friends have got daughters too. And so I can easily think myself into any kind of girls' heads, be they sort of bossy, funny girls or little shy girls or whatever. With boys, um, I can write about boys in the story, but it's quite hard to think myself into their heads. The, one of the only times I've done this with are the two stories about Tim in Cliffhanger and Buried Alive. And he's quite an anxious boy. I think if I had been a boy, I would be very much a boy like Tim. However, in those two books, there is my all-time favorite boy character, and that's Biscuits, who's large and funny, and he's kind, and never lets life get him down. And then when you read about Biscuits in another book, Best Friends, you discover that he's brilliant at making cakes. So I think if I could invite any of my child characters to come and stay, I'd get on very well with Biscuits. It would be great. Thank you very much. Sorry, we've run out of time for, for uh, questions. Um, thank you so much, Jacqueline, for a, an enthusiastic and inspirational talk. And frankly, personally, thank you for Jackie, because I couldn't get through my teenage years without that magazine. <laughs> Now, um, Jacqueline will be leaving the stage and going to her position um, in the signing tent to await signing. Please, thank you. Please don't uh, go um, because Rachel and I are going to do something very special. Remember, I told you about the, yeah, the, the all the coloured cards. You still got them? Okay. What Rachel's going to do, so it's nothing to do with me, is to choose one of the coloured cards, and there are four colours, and they're in this envelope. And if she chooses the colour that you are holding, then you will be the lucky people that will be able to get a book signed by Jacqueline Wilson in the signing tent. Unfortunately, she needs to um, 
preserve her energy for writing all the wonderful books that we are hoping that she's going to write so she can't sign all the hundreds of books that probably you will have. So that's why we've had to do this very difficult job of selecting certain people. So we'll do that. And um, also, one book um, for signing, uh, and then everyone can get through speedily and get their books signed. So do we have something exciting music-wise? to build up the tension. We never get to do this, so we're making the most of it. Okay, Rachel. And, and the color is... <laughs> oh. No, it was nothing. <laughs> okay, if you have this orangey, ticket you are the lucky people now you will be asked to show that colored ticket before you get into the signing tent not that we don't trust any of you and um, so please keep a hold of it and if you could make your way to the signing tent and we're sorry for the people who didn't have that color thank you More podcasts, videos and live recordings of author events can be found at www.edbookfest.co.uk.